Please pray with me. We seek you in your word, O God, as though we are searching for water in a dry and weary land. By the power of the Holy Spirit, may this word be the be to us the richest feast, satisfying the soul. When our mouths we will praise you, and with our lives we will bless you, our host and our hope. Amen. The Old Testament lesson is in Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 9, found in your pew Bibles in page 598. Listen now for, the word, for a word from the Lord. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you that have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come buy wine and milk through, without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves with rich food. Incline your ears and come to me. Listen, so that you may live. I will make with you an everlasting covenant, thy steadfast, sure love for David. I see made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. See you shall call nations that you do not know, and nations that do not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsaken their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them return to the Lord, that he may have mercy on them. And to our God, he will abundantly pardon. For our thoughts are not your thoughts, nor our ways my ways, says the Lord. For as heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our New Testament lesson comes from Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. If you're following along in the Pew Bible, you can find that on page 848. At that very time... There were some present who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. He said to them, Do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Or those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish, perish just as they did. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, See here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? 
He replied, Sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. The Gospel of our Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. This week, Thomas's mom shared that she had taken an Enneagram test and was curious to know our results. To be honest, I hadn't thought about the Enneagram in a few years. I remember that several years ago, Father Menninger led a retreat for some of you that was incredibly meaningful based around the Enneagram. I also have some friends who are constantly sharing infographics on Instagram about how spot on their Enneagram type is, is for them. But between a toddler and a baby, I had not really thought much about what my type was. If you're not familiar with the Enneagram, it's a system of personality typing that describes patterns of how people interpret the world and manage their emotions. And since my mother-in-law asked, I thought I'd take time and resurface my results. And wow, they were spot on. As a three-wing two, I am very goal-oriented and care deeply for community. I would say that these things are strengths. However, my goal orientation often turns into competitiveness. Thomas can attest to this fact. When we first got married, we lived in the small town of Shelby, North Carolina, and we connected with a few other couples and formed a supper club. There wasn't much to do in Shelby, and so we made a habit out of cheering on American Idol and having game nights. It was natural for us to make teams such that none of us were on the same team with our partner. There were many nights of laughter. I vividly remember one night when our team was winning, which made our friend Mike a little bitter, and he looked at his wife Amanda and jokingly said, Give me my rib back. If you don't get the reference, see Genesis 1. However, all the fun and games went out the window when it became clear to me that Thomas was going to win repeatedly. And I could not handle it to the point that we would leave supper club and I wouldn't talk to him for the rest of the evening for no other reason than the fact that I had lost. It's not becoming or mature, but it's the truth. And after 15 years of marriage, I've learned to simply tell our friends that we're happy to play games together as long as Thomas and I are on the same team. That competitiveness is built into my nature. And often, it has me place myself in a seat of judgment over others. And so when I read our gospel lesson this morning, I can't help but wonder if the disciples and I have a similar character flaw. Our passage begins with a conversation between Jesus and the disciples. I imagine this 12 have been scattered through town, out sharing the good news and catching up on the latest happenings and have regrouped with Jesus for the evening. Andrew, perhaps, pipes up and says, 
man, did you hear about what Pilate did? Those guys were kind of asking for it, though. They were running with a pretty rowdy crowd. Philip chimes in. That's almost as bad as what happened in Salom. You know, they kept cutting corners when they were building that tower, and it fell and killed 18 people. Glad I don't work for that construction company. Jesus overhears this and can't help but address the hierarchy his disciples have somehow imagined. Jesus reminds them that a person's worth is not found in how good they are or in who they know. Neither the disciples' piety or their position gives them permission to sit in a seat of judgment. And so Jesus does what he often does best. He tells a parable. I love when we encounter Jesus' parables because of the nature of a parable. It means that I can find new life and new meaning with each reading. Some parables, like the Good Samaritan, are so familiar to us that it's hard to read them a different way. Other parables sometimes perplex us. They seem obscure or less familiar, and we sometimes struggle to interpret them. There are a lot of different strategies about how to interpret parables. Sometimes we want to look closely at the context. This can be especially interesting if a parable is found in multiple gospel accounts. Other times we may want to dive into the historical context and figure out the ancient social norms or the agricultural practices and see what they can teach us. But the technique I think that's most common is trying to identify the characters in the parable. Specifically, we ask, where is God and where are we? The thing I like about this technique is that from the outset, it helps us think about how we can apply the lesson of the parable to our own lives. And so in doing, how can we more fully live out our calling as the people of God? A traditional reading of today's parable often has a sort of fire and brimstone take. God is usually read into the place of the vineyard owner, and we are the fig tree. If God is the vineyard owner, then that means that God is disappointed that a person's life isn't producing fruit. In this reading, it seems to me that we make God out to be like the good fairy in Little Bunny Foo-Foo. I'll give you one more chance, but shape up. Perhaps there's another way for us to hear this parable. What if God isn't an angry landowner, but instead the gracious gardener? A gardener who sees the fig tree that is yet to bear fruit and says, wait, what if? A gardener who believes that the tree, even without bearing fruit, is worthy of the soil in which it is planted. As I read the passage a moment ago, the vineyard owner says, the fig tree, why should it be wasting soil? 
It strikes me even more sharply when I read it in the New Living Translation because it paraphrases it, this fig tree is taking up space, space that we can use for something else. God, as a gardener, has such resonance for me because I know that it is true that God looks at us and says, just as you are, come to me. You don't have to bring anything. You don't have to bear fruit. You are worthy of my grace just as you are. I'm not seeking to replace you. You are worthy of my love right where you are. In grace, God says, not only will I meet you where you're planted, but I will pour into you. Not because I need something from you, but because I love you. We can hear it in the Isaiah passage Emily read for us a few moments ago. A call to come as we are and enjoy the bounty that God offers. Friends, believe the good news. We are worthy just as we are. We don't have to put on a front or pretend we have it all together. We don't have to have something to earn it. We are worthy to receive God's grace as we are. The way of the world would tell us that if we're not producing, if we are not pulling our weight, then we need to be cut down. But the God of grace is the one who sees us in the midst of all those massive producing vines and declares that we are worthy of the soil in which we are planted. We are worthy to be loved and cared for. We are worthy of the tending that God offers. And so for all of you who may be a little more like me than you want to admit, those of us who kind of resonate with the disciples, who can fall into that seat of judgment, let us remember that we are recipients of a lavish grace from a gardener who sees us and pours into us right where we are. And so instead of judging others, may we hear the parable and choose to respond like the gracious gardener, seeing the possibility in those around us, offering a chance to try again, believing that even when we don't see fruit, worth is there. Perhaps you're in the congregation today, and judgment is not something you struggle with, at least not of other people. But rather, sometimes you fall into judging yourself, thinking that you are not worthy because you do not produce enough fruit. Maybe you feel like you don't belong here because you don't have enough scripture memorized or you don't attend as regularly as you should or perhaps you still have questions or you just feel a bit like that random fig tree in the middle of a vineyard. I love the commentary I read that suggests perhaps the fig tree will never 
produce fruit. And thus, never become the asset others expect it to be. Perhaps the gardener knows that. And yet, saw the tree in the midst of the vineyard for what it could provide. Shade for the workers in the midst of a scorching harvest season. God sees you and declares, you are worthy. As recipients of God's grace, may we look at others around us, and may we look at ourselves, and not judge a perceived lack of fruit, but instead let us see with eyes of grace the gift they could bring, and the gift we are. Let us speak words of reminder to those who need it and tell them that they are worthy, just as they are, of God's grace and love. To the glory of God. Amen.